Well, good morning, Thrive Church. How are we doing today? I want to welcome you guys and all of those watching online as well as we continue our series in the book of Acts. If you're new with us today or newer, um, we've been journeying in the book of Acts since Easter, looking at the movement that we're a part of that's been unstoppable, this movement that's been called Christianity, um, Christ followers, believers, and we're looking at how it all started. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 21, verse 15 this morning, Acts 21, verse 15. Um, last week I shared with you what I believe to be the most important forgotten aspect of spiritual growth, which is relationships. That discipleship relationships are important. Somebody you know, would ask, well, how does someone leave addiction? Well, they have to leave their circle first. If they don't get a new circle, they'll never leave addiction because that's where all, this, the, you know, all that is. It's your relationships. Well, today I also want to talk about something that's very important. And I believe that what I'm going to talk about today is the most important attribute for followers of Jesus that most of us never think about and it's not seen in our culture today. And what we're going to see as we look at the Apostle Paul's life, we're going to see probably one of the times where he is the most humble he has ever been in his life. And so realize how we got here. The Apostle Paul now is in his descent going to Jerusalem and then going to Rome. And Paul knows that at this point when he gets to Rome, it's over for him. He'll be handed over to Gentiles, and he'll eventually die, which we know by tradition and history that the Apostle Paul died by being, uh, most believed, beheaded under the Roman Empire. And last week, he had friends that pleaded with him, please don't go, Paul, don't, don't, don't go to Jerusalem, and don't go to Rome, and we're going to see what's going to happen in Jerusalem today that's going to get him to Rome. Now, the Apostle Paul was, uh, is probably the most influential person in all of Christianity. And the reason I say that, but, you know, besides Jesus, right, but the Apostle Paul... His ministry was to non-Jews. It was to Gentiles, to you and I. And before he came on the scene, he was the most Jewish of them all. He was, he was named Saul, and he taught the Torah. He had the Torah, the Old Testament, memorized. He was the leading Jew of the Jews, and Jesus saves him. And it's interesting, Jesus doesn't give him a ministry to the Jews. He says, I'm going to give you a ministry to the non-Jews. And Christianity started with the Jews. They were looking for their Jewish Messiah. But these guys believe this that in order to be fully saved to be right with god you you can accept christ as your savior you can be water baptized you can do all that but you gotta be jewish too so like all of us being non-jews would have to go and start attending all the synagogues on saturdays if you're not circumcised men get circumcised you know what that is you can google it later you can tell your kids that talk about it over lunch well that is but you had to be redeemed to their culture and the apostle paul steps in and he says no 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 he says, I've studied this, and I'm more Jewish than ye all. He says, I've looked at this, I've studied this, and I've seen God's work. They don't have to become Jewish. We can remain Jewish and, and stay true to our customs and our traditions, but these Gentiles, which are you and I, they, they only need to have faith in Christ. They need to abstain from sexual morality and not you know, drink the blood of strangled animals and not eat meat sacrificed to animals. Like that's the idols. That's, that's all they got to do. And this right here, what I'm telling you, and today what you see is the number one contention in the whole New Testament. If you want to understand Paul's letters and what he's dealing with 90% of the time, it's these Jewish people that are in, they're Christians that are inside his churches that are telling you, hey, 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 you're not fully saved yet. You're like, why not? Well, you're, you're not Jewish. You're not, done, you're not doing the Jewish temple rites. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. And Paul calls those guys Judaizers. And his whole thing is fighting against them. When you read Galatians, you read Romans, he talks about not being saved by the law or works of law. He's speaking directly to 
these Jews who are saying, you must obey the Torah, the 613 laws, or you're not really Christian. And that's Paul's main rub with them. And what you're going to see today, though, is Paul has one act of humility that will ultimately cost him his life. Now, here's what's happened. Last week, he met with Agabus and his friends and Luke, and his friend Agabus said, hey, hey, he took Paul's belt. He said, the owner of this belt, the Spirit says that he will, he ties his hands up, will be given over to the Gentiles if he goes to Jerusalem. Well, now Paul's in Jerusalem, and he travels there. And don't you see what happens to Paul and what he does in this context? And realize this, he's talking to James and to Peter. to John. These are the guys who are all about, like, you need to be Jewish to be saved. And look what happens here in this conversation. Verse 15 of Acts 21 says, After this, we packed our things and left for Jerusalem. That's after he met with Agabus and his friends there. Some believers from Caesarea accompanied us, and they took us to the home of Manasseh, a man originally from Cyprus, and one of the early believers. When we arrived, the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem welcomed us warmly. The next day, Paul went with us to meet with James. This is Luke telling the story. He was there to meet with James. And all the elders of Jerusalem of the church were present. So this is Paul going into Jerusalem, the Jewish holy place. And he walks in there, and they're all in there, and it says this. After greeting them, Paul gave a detailed account of the things God had accomplished among the Gentiles through his ministry. Paul's telling them, hey, listen, I know you may not think that they are fully saved, but they're being filled with the Holy Spirit. We're seeing miracles. Addictions are being broken. Churches are being planted. God is fully alive among the, the non-Jews. And after hearing this, they praised God, and then they said, and this is where the contention lies. He says, and then they said, you know, dear brother, how many thousands of Jews have also believed. And they all followed the law of Moses very seriously. These are the people who, again, they're Christians, but they also want to follow the law of Moses. If they want to do it, that's fine with them. But then he says this in verse 21, but the Jewish believers here in Jerusalem have been told that you're teaching all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn their backs on the law of Moses. The law of Moses was everything to them. Everything. So he said, hey, listen, we're being told that you're telling everyone to turn their back on it, that it's null and void. And he says this, they have heard that you teach them not to circumcise their children or to follow other Jewish customs. What should we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. James is saying, hey, listen, Paul, these guys here are angry with you. They believe that you are separating yourself from the, the, old, the old covenant, from the old covenant. They believe this. They've heard that, and it's going to get ugly. Tell us how to mitigate this, Paul. Tell us. And it says here, as for the Gentile believers, they should do what we already told them in a letter. They should abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood, or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. And so what Paul does after this, this is very important. I don't have time to read the whole passage, so I'm going to tell you what happens. He tells them that he understands what they're going through. He understands what they're facing. He says, not, that's not the truth. He says, I've never told any Jews not to do that, just not to put that burden on the Gentiles. So what Paul does is he takes two young men with him to go to the temple and to give what they call a shave offering. I do a shave offering every day. I know all about the shave offering. Some of y'all do too. You got some pretty I see those heads glowing. God uncovers the pretty heads of the world. The ugly ones, he leaves covered up. So if you got hair, you got an ugly head. That's all I got to say. All right? So Paul carries these two young men into the temple. 
Now, Paul's okay with doing this, and here's why. The offering that they're giving, the shave offering, is not one to, you know, a forgiveness of sin. He knows that's only through Jesus. The shave offering that he's given is one of what would be considered a Nazarite vow, where these young men are giving their life to the Lord in service to him. He's carrying them to the Jewish temple, and he's doing this with them. And when he does this, here's what happens. That's when he gets arrested. That's when the soldiers and the Jews come at him, and he gets arrested, and then his descent is into Rome. He got arrested and is sent to Rome and will ultimately die because he decided to have an attribute and display an attribute that most of us don't understand and don't realize that may be the most important attribute of Christianity. And this aspect here is probably the most important time that Paul shows humility, and I'm going to show you why. And what I want you to understand is that humility is the most important attribute of followers of Jesus. Everything else rises and falls on that. And so if you have your notes handy, write this down. Because here's what I believe about humility. Here's what we're going to understand about Paul is that humility gives you the greatest ability. I'll say it one more time. Humility gives you the greatest ability. I don't care what you don't know. I don't care how lack of talented talent you have or something I don't care what you think about yourself if you have humility and you're teachable and you're humble God can do anything with you and God will do great things with you if you're humble and see what humility is it's this humility is having a, a lower or modest view of your own importance pride is having an elevated view of your importance, of your opinions and your thoughts and the way you see the world. That's prideful, that you believe your way is right and everything you see, the way you see the world is right. Humility is saying, you know what? I, I, I may not be right. Let's, let's figure this out together. Let's, let's talk about this and maybe I'm missing some things. And you got to realize Paul was not known for his humility. Now, was he humble? Yes. Now, and some of you will, will push back on this, but remember, the Apostle Paul was not Jesus. He wasn't perfect. Please. Please. The Apostle Paul had to defend himself many times in his letters. He comes off as being defensive. He comes off as being angry. In the letter to the Galatians, when you read Scripture, you've got to read the tone of how, how it's been written, too. Like Philippians, he's all about just rejoicing and God's loving and God's caring. And then Galatians, he's like... I wish those Judaizers, Judaizers, they're trying to get Gentiles to follow the law. He says, I wish they would emasculate themselves. He said that. He says, too, if anybody preaches the gospel to you that, uh, other than what we've, we've preached to you, let them be cursed. Like Paul, over and over again, he calls them dogs at one time in the book of Galatians. Paul was always having to defend the Gentiles, defend the fact that they're really saved and protect them. And so he comes off a lot of times as very defensive, as very angry. And he had to stand up against Peter, James, and John, the very pillars of the church. In Galatians, again, he says, I withstood Peter to his face, meaning his actor's mask, because Peter would go and eat with Jews, but then not want to eat with the Gentiles and keep arms distance because he wanted to have his reputation intact to all the Jews. So Paul was always confronting. Paul was always dealing with the issues. He was always defending. He was always, in all of his letters... And here, he could have easily done the same thing. He could have said, James, I don't care what these Jews do. I don't care what they think. I know what is right. And I refuse to give in to them. He could have said that. But Paul, in an act of humility, says, here's what I'll do. 
I will go to the temple and show the Jews that I'm not against the law of Moses for us Jews. I will negotiate. I will, I will compromise on this. Not in a sinful way, but I'll compromise for the relationship to make sure they know that's not what the real message is. I will communicate that. And Paul, in that act of humility, it cost him to be arrested, to be put in prison, and sent to Rome because of the act of humility. And I believe so many times that's what we miss in Christianity, that we miss as believers. We miss this attribute called humility. We're surrounded by a world that is people on platforms, it's people sharing their opinions, people believing they're totally right on a subject. We have politicians who call each other names back and forth. We are surrounded in a world that doesn't have humility. So therefore, we look at our relationships, guess what doesn't exist? Humility. Most of us have no idea what humility looks like in relationships or in church or at a job or in friendships. We only know what pride looks like because we've been taught that. And I want you to realize this about humility. And here's something very important, Philippians 2, 3, and 8. When Paul writes to the church at Philippi, he's, this church is infighting. And once he gets out of chapter 1 and he's talking about rejoicing and those things, he then turns to show them what humility in relational communities looks like. And in Philippians 2, 3, and 8, this is very important. This is what is called by most scholars the Christ hymn. They believe that the early church would sing this together, declaring who Christ is and what he did. And look what Paul writes to the church at Philippi in 2, verse 3. He says, don't be, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Man, if we could just get that right there, we'd be good, right? He says, be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. That's what Paul did. He just didn't look at his own interests. He didn't think of himself as more important than James and the, and the Jews and what they thought. He humbled himself and looked to their, to their interest. And then he says this, you must have the same attitude Christ had. It's not like, I hope you do, I'm praying for you. I hope you get there. He says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And then he shares the Christ hymn. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to, meaning that he didn't flaunt it. He didn't go around saying, hey, I'm God. You need to just back off. Listen, bro, back. Hey, hey, I'm God in the flesh. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, and this is what humility does. He was humble. He says, therefore, and the same applies to us. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of the highest honor and gave him the name above all names, that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Humility is the attribute that sent Christ to earth in incarnation to save us from our sins. Humility. And that's what I want us to, to operate in. I want you to understand what humility is. How do I develop this? How do I grow in this? Because that's when people will see you most like Jesus when you're humble. Now here's the thing about humility. We'll write this down. Humility grows as pride dies. Humility grows as pride dies. I want to submit to you today that you can't just grow in humility. 
You can't just say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, these seven practices will make you more humble. Because humility and pride cannot exist on the same plate. Because if you never lose your pride, if you still remain prideful and arrogant and try to develop humility, that's called false humility. You'll learn to say, I'm sorry when you're not sorry. You don't really care what people think. You don't care about their feelings or emotions. You will develop a false sense of humility. And that's, many people have that, a very, very, very facetious um, surface humility. The best way to develop humility is have your pride die. Sometimes it takes being humiliated to develop humility. Most people get very angry when they're humiliated. Why? Because it, it's humility. That word is in there. It's kind of like this. When my son was really little, we would drive by the James River, and he would see the rocks, and he would say, Dada, Dada, the rocks grew. I was like, no, buddy, the rocks didn't grow. The rocks don't grow anymore. The rocks aren't growing. He said, then what happened? I can see the rocks. I said, the water receded. See, inside of you as a follower of Jesus, inside of you is a humble, authentic self that God has created. In your whole life, you've been taught to live by pride, to defend yourself, to set up protective measures. Your whole life, and that's the water line. And as you crucify pride, as you identify pride in your life and your prideful areas, as you begin to crucify and deal with that and say, I refuse to let that exist, pride begins to die. That water level recedes, and what happens? The rocks begin to show, the rocks of humility. Humility is revealed in your life the more that you crucify pride. Humility is shown. And so humility will grow as pride begins to die. The waters of pride recede. Because here's the thing about pride. Pride produces anger. The number one attribute of pride is anger. You set yourself against other people. You're angry. You're upset. You rail at them. It cuts you off from them. There is no healthy relationships that will ever flourish when anger is present. And pride produces that. Pride produces everything you don't like about yourself and others. You know that? Pride is the source of it all. Do you know why Satan got kicked out of heaven? He was, again, an angel in heaven named Lucifer. Do you know why he got kicked out? Pride. Oh, I can do that better than God. Get, get, give me the shot. And he'd be going around and gossip with the angels and, well, yeah, and telling the angels, well, you, yeah, we, we, we tell this, I could do this better. Join my team. And God kicked him out of heaven. Why? Pride. And if we don't deal with pride as believers, it will separate us. It will keep us in harmful relational cycles where we're always angry at everybody else and we never own our own stuff. Because you know what humility does? Humility produces unity. Humility has conversations about things that we disagree about. Humility is when you sit down and you want to understand the other person's feelings and their thoughts and their processes. Humility and, and write this down. This is probably the key for humility. Humility wants to understand. It wants to understand. You know what pride does? Pride just wants to be understood by others. Pride is a monologue to others. Pride is telling everybody how you feel and what you think. Humility is a dialogue where you listen and you want to care to understand, why do you feel that way? How did you get to that point? How can I help with that? Could you imagine if your relationships had that language in there? Could you imagine a life where, where a husband and a wife 
A parent and child had that type of dialogue. Could you imagine a life where your friendship said, I want to understand. If both people go in wanting to understand each other, that's where flourishing happens. That's humility. If both people just want to be understood, and they go in claiming their point and claiming where they're at, that's where you see division happen. And here's my fear. I want you to write this down because this is why I believe this is so important today. If we don't die to pride, then pride will eventually cause us to die. Now, it may not be physical death, but you will see death all around you. You will see brokenness all around you. You will see relationships broken all around you, the more pride that you have. Because if you don't die to pride, pride will eventually cause you to die. And you will experience death. You will experience life and joy and peace. As a matter of fact, Solomon, who was the wisest man ever, here's what he wrote in Proverbs 16, 18. He said, pride goes before what? A destruction or a fall. Like, you can literally, literally, you can say, that person's going to fall. Life's going to get really bad for them. Their life's getting ready to fall apart. Well, how can you say that you're judging? I'm not judging. If they're full of pride, it will all unravel, I promise you. And I've seen people where it's like, just a matter of time, their anger is going to absolutely destroy them. If they don't deal with that, it's going to deal with them, and it's not pretty when it does. And then he says this. He says, in haughtiness before fall. So pride goes before destruction, and haughtiness, that, that elevated view of yourself goes before the fall. And that's why I say that to you. Like, if you think, man, I don't, I don't think I'm very prideful, then you're probably prideful. If you think, oh, I'm pretty humble, you're probably prideful. We all need to look at the areas of pride in our life. How does pride manifest itself in your life? How does pride show up? And if you're not sure, I can tell you this. Pride's like bad breath. You can't tell it. Everybody around you can. <laughs> you're like, oh, I, it smells good to me. And they're like, it's like, do you know when we talk about this subject how offensive you are? Do you know when we get into an argument how def defensive you are with that? Do you know how easily offended you are? Like, have somebody in your life that can be that sounding board to help you out if you can't self-detect your own pride, because sometimes it's like carbon monoxide. You need a detector, because you can't self-detect, and it will eventually kill you. And friends, can I tell you what I'm preaching to you today is not, I'm not preaching to you, I'm having a conversation with you, because this is something in my life I've dealt with over and over and over. From a young child, I, I taught, I was taught in, intuitively myself, by nurture and nature, that you need that anger will protect you that anger will help you that anger will keep you from being hurt and so every time i was confronted with something i would just i'll just punch you if i beat you you're not a threat anymore right so in school like a kid stood up to me and did, i just i just knock you out this is what i did i'd, I'd fight you and that's what i was taught from my dad that's i was taught protective measures and when i became a christian yeah anger still would, would show up and flashes. I wasn't overall angry anymore, but I've told you before, I'd be playing basketball, like anger would come out, out of nowhere. Or anger on the road. And what I've realized is this, is that I was able as a believer, and this is so important, I got really good at hiding pride and developing false humility. And the reason I know I was able to do that is because I, I would have anger still come out and frustration still come out. I never dealt with it. And what I've realized now, when anger shows up in my life, 
do, stop saying they made me angry. You've caused me to be angry. You've, stop saying you and start saying I. And deal with it and say, you know what? There is undealt with pride in my life. And I can tell you every time that I've had something in my life that's been broken, every time it all goes back to pride and anger. And we live in a culture, guys, everybody's angry about something, aren't they? Everybody's angry, and we're surrounded by that. And so as believers, what the world is looking for is they're looking for true humility, and they're attracted to that. They're attracted to authentic people who are humble people, who will have conversations, who will admit they're wrong. That's what they're looking for. So here's what we have to do, and I want you to write this down. Lower your pride so humility can rise. Lower your pride so humility can rise. Matter of fact, James, the half-brother of Jesus, he says this. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. The same thing that was said about Jesus in Philippians 2, 3, that he humbled himself to the position of a slave, then God exalted. If you humble yourself, God can raise you up. If you'll lower your pride and let your humility rise, God can raise you up. He can raise your standard of relationships. He can give you promotions and opportunities that you never had before. And he will give you a quality of life where you actually enjoy relationships like you've never enjoyed them before. And I believe if we were able to tackle pride and look at pride and say, this cannot exist in my life, we would see flourishing on a level we've never seen before. Now, here's the thing I want you to do. I'm going to give you three signs that pride is causing premature death. Three signs. And this is how you can begin to, to dictate that in your own life. And maybe instead of looking at other people's lives, look at your own life. But the first one is this here. You can't admit that you're wrong. You can't admit that you're wrong. You refuse. You will not own your part of anything. Now, the other side of it, some of you say, I'm sorry way too much, and you clean that up because you just, you just, you've been taught to say, I'm sorry, and beat yourself up. But some of you with pride, way opposite direction. You're not in the wrong ever. It's always somebody else. It's always that job. It's, I mean, it, it, we get to a point in our age in life that you just get to, I mean, can't you just begin to look that everywhere you go, you are? I mean, isn't there a certain time we look and see that, like, it may not be the relationship, it may not be the church or the job or the friend? Don't we need to pull back and say, well, you know what? This is a cycle, and it's been going on my whole life. And to be sure, it can't be. Because you will take your problems everywhere you go if you don't deal with them. And one of the signs of pride is being able to say, I was wrong. Or I can see your point of view. And not just that. But you're able to go and say, I'll put legs to it. Because one of the things I think that, um, that people do, and this is false humility. False humility says, I'm sorry. But never, there's no legs to sorry. Do you know sorry has two legs? Sorry has two legs. I'm sorry has two legs. And that means that when somebody says, I'm sorry, I was wrong, they put action to it. I'm sorry, I was wrong, I'll now do this. People who have false humility or pride, they'll say, I'm sorry that I hurt your feelings and never do anything about it. That's, that's what false humility is. That's what pride is. You have to learn to admit that you're wrong. Or look at from someone else's point of view and understand how they feel about that situation and say, you know, I, I see how you feel. And man, that, I mean, I really understand that, like, how that looks and how that could feel to you. And here's what I will do. I, if you do that, you'll solve 90% of your marital problems. 
I'm sorry, I was wrong, and now here's the steps that I will take. The second sign of premature death that pride's causing that is secondly, you will not ask for help. You'll figure it out on your own. You'll do it on your own. Somebody who's humble understands they don't have all the answers. They understand that there's smarter people in the room. They ask the questions I've said before, what do you think when they get around people? And they will ask for help. They will go see a counselor. There's nothing wrong with that, guys. I, I want to just remove that stigma as much as I can from this church. I love when I talk to someone and they say I'm struggling and I'm going through a tough time. And I ask the question, are you seeing someone? I mean, or do you have a spiritual sponsor, somebody who knows Jesus who's helping you, but are you seeing someone professionally? I love it. The greatest compliment you can give me as a pastor when you say, yes, I have a therapist that I'm seeing. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Because you have to understand that there are some things that are bigger than you. There's things that started in your childhood that you've, you will not be able to overcome on your own. That you literally cannot see in yourself that a professional can pull out of you. Because you have to realize this. A lot of times you will treat people and you will, and you will project upon people according to what your parents did to you. And you do need some help sometimes. Ask for help. And finally this morning, here's the third and final one. You rarely compliment others. Withholding love and withholding compliments is a way to make others secretly feel like they're not good enough because you believe that you're superior and you never want them to understand that you believe what they're doing is not good enough. Can I tell you this? Nobody has ever gotten better by either being criticized or not having compliments. Nobody. Well, I'm angry with them. I don't want to compliment them. They're not doing a great job. I don't want to compliment them. Maybe if you did, they would get better. Maybe if you complimented them on something they are doing well, they would rise to the occasion. Can I tell you a secret about men in here? Can I tell you a little secret, women? Men need compliments too. Because a lot of men just feel like they're not doing a good job. They don't feel like they're, I mean, I know you look at them and think, well, he doesn't need that. Men need compliments too. And, and guys, can I tell you, women need to be complimented. But be very careful, as I said last week about the criticizers, be careful of people that are full of pride who withhold compliments because they're displeased with something. I have a saying, and it's this here, it's, it's the, the, really the, the compliment bridge, is that compliments build a bridge. It's like bricks being laid to the other person. And you need about 10 compliments for every criticism that you show and you tell. Because if you way down a relationship with criticism you'll never build a bridge see so if compliments laying the brick you know what criticism is you gotta take a couple bricks away so if you're trying to help someone in their life or you have a relationship with them compliment them way more than you criticize them prideful people can't do that they were they can't, it's innate they want to punish people by withholding love and withholding compliments but here's what humble people do they, they compliment people they're grateful for people let people know how thankful they are for them all the time because humility knows that listen it's a it's a lower or modest view of your own importance i mean you guys realize this i i live in a culture in pastoral world this is this is hard to say but what it's become is a celebrity culture where you see guys on tv and, and, and they and really i mean it's crazy the following that some people have 
And I believe what's happened is with the leaders of churches, and it's in all churches, we have some really good pastors, I mean, even in this area, is we have an elevated view of our own importance. That we think as we're on a stage teaching that we're more important, we're above that. You know, we're, we, we have this elevated view. I think because of that, we then create people that go around to live out pride. Here's what I do know. If every four years they can replace the president of the United States of America, listen, if I, if I get hit by a Mack truck, if I get called to American Idol this week, if that's even a show anymore, you'll have somebody here next week preaching. I'm not that important. You know, when I go and spend time in nature, I love going to the ocean. I love going out into the mountains and seeing very vast, huge places because it helps me understand the world doesn't revolve around me. I'm not that important. In the scheme of things, I'm pretty small. And that's not beating yourself up. That's understanding your own importance in this world, your own opinion's importance. Your opinion is not that important. I know you formulated it and you're really, you know, why you feel about things, but you know what? In the day, that's, that's, it can be a prideful thing that separates you and others. Learn to lower that. You know, C.S. Lewis said this, I'll close with this quote. He said, humility is not thinking less about yourself. Humility is thinking about yourself less. Putting others' interests ahead of your own. Here's what I want for you. Here's why I'm preaching this message. I want you to find flourishing in all of your relationships. Develop humility. I want you to have God elevate you and continue to promote you in your life because of humility. And I want this church to be a Philippians 2 church where we're always looking out for the interests of others. We're always wanting to understand uh, how that person feels and what they're going through, that we operate in that. Because I'm telling you something, at Thrive Church, when people walk into this building that do not know the Lord, I want them to say, man, I don't know what it is about this group of people here, but I am attracted to this thing, and it's called humility. And they see a humble community in this church, right? And that's my desire. So I want to pray for you this morning because of that. Father, we come to you right now, and if the greatest attribute we should grow in is humility, Lord, the most dangerous attribute is pride. Today, we humbly and we corporately come to you and say, God, help us crucify pride. Help us die to pride so pride doesn't cause us to die, God. We pray for that right now. Reveal to us the prideful areas. We're not forgiving. We're not loving. We're not listening. Help us with that, Lord, in the name of Jesus. I pray that this week would be the start of a journey for some who have never confronted their own pride in their life. And I pray, God, that out of this, the world would be attracted to Christ because we're developing the very attribute that caused him to go from heaven to earth, which is humility. The very attribute that he walked in that sent him to the cross for our sin. God, I pray for that today. And as we're praying today, church, maybe your humble step, your next step for humility and lowering pride is you saying, I need the Savior. Somebody needing to ask for help. Some of you have never surrendered to Christ. You go to church, you believe in the Bible or in God, but you've never surrendered saying, God, I need your help. For when you are weak, he will make you strong. And so it's a sign, if you want to be strong in him, it's submitting your life to him, showing him that you need him. So if that's you today, 
He's saying, I want to surrender my life to Christ. I want to just walk in relationship with my Heavenly Father right where you're sitting. Pray this prayer after me. You say, God, I admit that I cannot save myself by being a good person. I'm a sinner, and I need the Savior today. I believe that Jesus is Lord. I believe he died on the cross, and I believe he rose again on the third day. Today I repent. Turn from my old life. I receive new life. Thank you for saving me. Jesus, you are my Lord today. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen.